Hey, this is Sean Kane, director of Silent Night Zombie Night, and you're listening to Gruesome Herzog. Hello, this is Natalie Sheets. I play Jenna in the film Madison County, and you're listening to Gruesome Herzog. Hey, horror fans, this is Ace Marrero, and you are listening to Gruesome Herzog. Dig it! I'm Jessica Funneborn, and I'm listening to Gruesome Herzog. This is Yvette Corvea, and most of you know me as Marla from Run Bitch Run. She's a really evil, crazy bitch. And you guys are listening to Gruesome Herzog. Hi, this is David Z. Stamp, and you're listening to Gruesome Herzogs. Hey, this is Bill Oberst, Jr. I play Dale in the film Dismal. And as Dale would say, let me tell you something. You're listening to Gruesome Herzog. You got Dale's word on that. Hey, this is James Cotton. I'm a director, writer, producer. You're listening to Gruesome Herzog. Jack Harrison, action actor and stunt coordinator of all three stunt teams. I played the character Idiot in the movie Dismal, and you'll listen to Gruesome Herzog. This is Gruesome Herzog, my very special guest and talented writers, uh, Matthew Chernov and David Rosiak. How are you guys doing? We're doing great, Scott. Doing good, yeah, doing really well. Well, thanks for coming on here. Um, I guess how you found me is I reviewed uh, Hard Ride to Hell, and uh, that's how we got in contact and did not realize that uh, Shark Swarm was actually a TV movie. I re- I bought it and didn't realize it after I watched it. I said, damn, this is pretty good for made-for-TV. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Actually, that one was made for, of all of all channels, that one was made for the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. It, it, uh, it was a strange, kind of a strange thing. When we were originally hired, we had heard, you know, NBC or Sci-Fi. And uh, it ended up uh, uh, Hallmark stepped in and kind of took over, and that uh, we were sort of baffled by that too. We we're like, really? You know, you want like a, a kill-heavy shark movie for the Hallmark Channel? Oh wow! And, uh, and uh, it ultimately aired on that channel first. It became like one of their top-rated movies. So uh, I guess uh, Hallmark viewers were just looking for some good bloody shark deaths. Yeah, I tell you what, that is a good bloody shark death in there. And uh, the, the body count in that movie is really good. It's okay. really like they. There's upwards of 35 to 40 people that get eaten throughout the four-hour... It's also one of the longest shark movies that's out there. It uh, was spread out over two nights for four hours, so it's, it's kind of an epic shark movie. Yeah. All right, well, if you guys don't mind, if we can backtrack a little bit. Um, I know a lot of listeners would be big on this, too. Um, me being in my, in my early 40s, and I grew up with the uh, Jasons and the uh, Michael Myers and the Freddies, you have one here. It's called the Crystal Lake Massacre Revisited in 2009. Yeah. Would, would you guys like to share to, to listeners exactly what this is about? You want me to start, Matt? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, basically, what that is, um, about uh, two years ago, there were re-releases of uh, the, all the Fridays on DVD. So 
Um, I got involved with that first. I'm, I'm friends with a guy named Daniel Ferens. Um, uh, savvy listeners might recognize Dan as uh, the guy who originally wrote Halloween 6. And he's a, he's a big Jason and, uh, and Michael Myers fan. And so he was hired by Paramount to uh, come up with all the special features for Fridays Part 4 through 7. And uh, I got, you know, sort of involved helping him, you know, dig out footage and things like that. And one of the ideas he had that was kind of cool was to do sort of a, uh, like, behind-the-music-type mockumentary um, dealing with the citizens of Crystal Lake. Okay. You know, as if, as if, as if Jason uh, was a real person. And so it's like, you know, a History Channel-esque, doc, you know, documentary interviewing citizens of the town. Oh, and, wow. uh, and two of the uh, citizens, I guess, uh, were played by me and Matt. Actually, and we're uh, we're Jason conspiracy theorists that run that run like a, a Crystal Lake website. Oh wow! And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's done you know in a very comedic fashion. Um, you know, we're uh, we're ranting on all these crazy conspiracy theories, but kind of the joke of it is that Matt and I are the only ones who are actually right about Jason. You know, coming back from the dead, and reanimating, and things like that. So it's uh, you know it's, it's just kind of a good fun you know comedic look at the Friday movies by guys who really really enjoy them. That's cool. Now, is that available? It is. It's uh, it, it's uh, if you if you pick up, uh, I guess the re-releases of, of DVDs for parts four through actually through eight, um, we are on all that stuff. Oh, really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Nice. Matt, you know, yeah, that was a lot. That was a lot of fun to do. Dan Dan wrote the script. Dan Farron, but um, allowed us some time to improv a few lines here and there, and mm-hmm. so it was fun after writing for so long to be able to be on the other side of the camera and do a little bit of acting. It's, yeah. Uh, it, it was a good time. Yeah, especially with Friday the 13th, which, which Matt and I are both obviously huge fans of, too. We grew up with it just like you did as well. Right. Well, that's... that. I would like to check that out. That's interesting. I've seen the movies, obviously, but I'd like to see what you guys did. Um, there's another one here, which we already talked about, but I'm going to go in order. as a Shark Swarm. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned about the Hallmark channel, which that's very, very intriguing to me. I mean, considering it's odd that Hallmark Channel would actually grab that up. But tell you what, you know, like I said, I watched it again, and uh, I like the acting in this movie too. You know, you have the Daryl Hannah, you have John Schneider, and you have Armin Asante who mm-hmm. plays a money hungry. You know, gets at the end, and you even have F. Murray Abraham, in yep. it. and that was amazing too to see it. It's, it's, it's a nice cast. It's a good cast. Even um, one of my favorites in it is uh, John Enos, yes, who uh, from Melrose Place and from a bunch of other stuff. He, I, I was so happy when we found out that he had been cast, and we didn't find out he had been cast until we arrived on the set. That was one of the few movies that we've, um, we were there on the set when they were shooting it, and we walked in on the first day and saw John Enos standing there at a bar, and. I immediately turned to David and I said, "Oh my God, John Enos is going to be playing Kane, our character." And and I had been a huge fan of him on Melrose uh, years before. I thought he was he was always great, and um, he really brought it. He he, you know, chewed into that character and yep. uh, and really made it his own. He was uh, a, a pleasure to watch. Did you? Yeah, there was actually. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, was, there was a lot of time spent at the bar. <laughs> <during> the <shark laughs> Yeah, the crew the crews like to party pretty hard when they're after a fifteen hour day of, of shooting where it's they're really working their ass off. They really do like to unwind at the end and you get this it was it was nice to be able to just kind of uh, experience that on the inside this time and, yeah. and and see how they how they get along. It's really you know, you always hear the cliche about how a film is like a family, 
uh, film crews like that. And it's it's true they were, you know, they, yeah. they took over an entire motel uh, up in um, Northern California, um, in Mendocino somewhere, and I think that's where it was. Um, they took over an entire hotel just to um, where all the crew would stay and the actors would stay and. And at night after shooting, everybody would gather in the bar or in different ho- different motel rooms, and it was it was such a great atmosphere. Those guys yeah. were were super fun to work with. Yeah, and one of the one of the cool things about that too, the director of that of that film was uh, a guy named Jim Cotner, and uh, he actually began his career as like as the DP for uh, William Friedkin. And, uh, oh wow! He, uh, he's the guy who shot Cruising. He was like the assistant DP on The Exorcist. Okay. You know, so he, he would tell us stories constantly about working with like Bill Freakin and, uh, and, and doing all the classic seventies films. So that was a blast. He had he had also um, already had some shark experience on um, on both the original Jaws. Mm-hmm. Um, he was one of the I think was he assistant camera or Just, yeah he was assistant camera on Jaws on, on the original Jaws and then he was the main cinematographer on Jaws 3D. Mm-hmm. So he oh, wow. he had had some real good experience already working with shark movies and really wanted his chance I think to uh, mm-hmm. to you know have his own and uh, you know he was he was so cool to work with what a great guy he was the first the first time we actually met him mm-hmm. was on a script reading where it was like a production meeting everybody the heads of each department from costumes to camera to special effects to editing everybody showed up at this uh, production office to do a, a page one read through the script and it's because it was a four-hour movie, the script itself was about 240-plus pages. Wow. Mammoth. It's like a phone book. Yeah. And we, they just read through it page by page, scene by scene. Every department piped in with with questions that they had and how they would handle things. And Cotner, that was the first time we really saw him directing because he basically directed the meeting. Right. And, um, and his, organi- uh, his organizational skills and his, um, his familiarity with every single department was just... It was really pretty impressive, and, and when he turned to us during one of the breaks and said that he really loved that script, it just meant the world to us, because uh, we had been watching his stuff uh, that he had directed, when the, the episodes of Buffy and Angel that he had directed. He's just a really great, uh, talented guy. Right, and tell you what, we all know what John Schneider can do in these type of movies, but Daryl oh, yeah. but Daryl Hannon impressed me in this movie. I mean, the, the role that she played, she played this... Uh, uh, the hard ass, you know, she's going after Hamilton Lux, which is Armin Asante. But you know, like, like I said in my review, which you'll probably hear it, is you have like two or three stories going at one time, and that's what makes the movie intriguing because it all leads into the end. But it's not just one story; it's it's you know like two or three stories. And you know part I mean? it was interesting. Part of that was done out of necessity too, because we realized you know it's a four hour film. We have to have uh, multiple concurrent stories going on simultaneously. To, I guess to keep interest for right. the viewer. And there's actually there, uh, the script does differ a, uh, a good little bit from what ultimately ended up on screen. We had we had more concurrent stories going on too that had to be cut for time purposes. Right. But uh, and then of course we also had some 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 truly uh, like insane shark stuff that ultimately never got filmed. But maybe one day we'll get that back in sometime. With with Daryl Hannah that you mentioned, I mean one of the great things uh, with having her on board the film was she's like a real committed environmentalist. And the film, even though it basically functions in a way as like a throwback to a 50s uh, animal attack movie, right. uh, you know, she really um, allowed us to bring in a little bit of subtext in there about uh, you know, corporations and uh, pollution and environmental catastrophe. And um, so she really she, um, 
had had a lot of experience with that and there were some some scenes that we specifically wrote in once she had been cast where she talks about her uh, 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 doing oil cleanup on on beaches during the spills and she talks about Earth Day and different environmental causes and um, you know so so that was really important I think to have her in there she, yeah, uh, yeah. and and because of that we also you'll notice something in the movie that we wanted to make sure that the sharks uh, weren't being killed at the end that it wasn't just like the evil sharks attack and that people blow them up and shoot them and destroy them and right um, because uh, what they do instead is they use this uh, pulse gun thing that basically just uh, shocks them away and it kind of that we wanted to come up with a way where they can defeat the sharks but without having to kill them all because they were kind of innocent in a way they had just been you know polluted to and so that was a, a very conscious decision there. The, uh, the other thing that you might notice, too, uh, since you mentioned F. Marie Abraham, um, we named his character uh, Bill Girdler, which is uh, mm-hmm. actually uh, the, the name comes from William Girdler, who, uh, who directed uh, Day of the Animals and Grizzly, yep. you know, uh, uh, two, of, two of, my, of our favorite animal attack films. We wanted to kind of throw a little homage out there to him as well, too. Yeah, I read that on the IMDb, so I wrote that, yeah. There's one that's not in there, um, that's not on the IMDb, a uh, little mm. throwaway that I'll just mention is that uh, fans of The Fog, yes. uh, Carpenter's The Fog, might uh, notice one of the towns in, that is mentioned in there um, when they talk about... Um, Spivey Point. Spivey Point. That oh, the yeah. They're attacking a place called Spivey Point. And, um, you know, and it's basically a lot of it was taking place right where Carpenter was uh, filming. You know, mm-hmm. there was... Uh, the, the original script did also have a little bit more ho- uh, of the fog in there, where there was an entire climax set in a lighthouse, um, and the the location scouts for the film just like uh, went everywhere up and down California, finding different lighthouses that they could shoot at. Right. And they really found some beautiful locations, but uh, ultimately it was just deemed a little bit too cost prohibitive, or it would have eaten up too much time to really destroy a lighthouse. And yeah. And script the sharks knock the lighthouse down. Right, right. Yeah, that's the thing. Well, if you don't mind, we, we, we can switch switch the movies here. Now, I haven't seen this, and this is not a horror movie, but I'm going to go ahead and talk about it anyways. It's another TV movie that came out in 2008. It's called The Ring of Death. Mm-hmm. Um, that, is, uh, that was done for Spike, actually, and that was a, that was a straight-up... Uh, 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 kind of homage to our love of uh, canon films uh, back in the 80s, the canon action movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, it, so it's basically, it's uh, undercover cop has to go into prison um, disguised as a convict uh, to bust up an underground fighting ring, and of course he gets involved in those fighting rings himself. So it's just, you know, guys beating the shit out of each other yeah. uh, in a prison movie. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. i, I got to check that one out as well. I think, I think you'll dig that one, especially because yeah. I know you're as big an exploitation movie fan as anybody is, uh, and there's some Ilsa references in there, all from the Ilsa movies. Okay. Where, you know, those are so great, where um, there's actually a character, Ilsa, who turns up in there as the female warden, just like uh, Ilsa the Wicked Warden with Diane Thorne, which is so, uh, you know, mm-hmm. just one of the best prison movies there is. So it's, it, it's a, definitely a fun throwback 80s type movie. You know, Stacey Keach plays Warden Golan, yep. who people familiar with Golan and Globus might uh, know who uh, who he's modeled after. And uh, Stacey Keach, I mean, out of all the, the actors that we've worked with, he's my personal favorite. I think he just really... Yeah. Uh, I, I've loved him for years. And to, to hear him bite into the dialogue that we wrote and really just, like, 
give it an entire new le- uh, level was uh, was really fun to watch. He, he stole the show. Well, before we go any farther, I got to ask you guys a question. I mean, you probably get asked this question all the time, but. What does it feel like when you guys write a movie like this and the movie turns out so well? You know, it's, it's probably a dumb question probably, but how does it make you guys feel when you can see that your work is, that, you know, your writing is actually working? You know, it, it probably sounds a dumb question to ask. It's, you know. an, it's an amazing feeling, actually, because, uh, I mean, obviously as a writer you spend so much time on your own. You know, Matt and I, you know, the bulk of our time is spent, you know, just in the house working on stuff. Um, and, uh, and you're separated, you know, uh, from from the movie-making process for a good long while. And, and obviously, you know, Matt and I, when we're throwing dialogue back and forth, you know, it works for us, but when you finally see it uh, uh, come to life, there's there's no feeling like that, you know. that um, You know, uh, even, you know with, with, even with Shark Swarm, several of the scenes that that, uh, that got filmed were things that we came up with, you know, at like 3 a.m. one morning while, like, you know, chain-smoking cigarettes yeah. and, uh, and drinking coffee. And it's kind of like, really, they're shooting this now? <laughs> you know, so it's pretty surreal. It's, it's an uncanny feeling is the way I always describe it because it's um, so many of the scenes just exist when we're starting out they just exist in uh, my head and David's head and uh, you have a certain image of it it's almost like a dream that you kind of remember half remember and then when you actually see it on film it's like somebody took one of your dreams and, mm-hmm. and made it concrete and it just gives you this like shiver because it's some things are dead on, and other things are slightly different that you hadn't anticipated. Right. And it it really takes um, the the first viewing of each movie. David and I just end up like it, it gives you almost like a shiver where you can't it, it, you can't quite process it. Yeah. It takes about like three or four times before you can start seeing it as other people might see it who who didn't kind of come up with it in their head before you can really figure out what you actually have there. Those first few viewings are just. Uh, you're, you're mostly just trying to figure out like how how this happened. You're mostly trying to process like what you're actually seeing. It right. takes a while. It's, it's a fun feeling. Yeah. All right. Well, the next one also in 2008 that I haven't seen either, but it looks interesting to me. It's called Grave Misconduct. <laughs> that's a that was a, that, that's a kind of a funny story. That's actually uh, a movie that aired originally on Lifetime, and uh, and it's we sort of subversively. Uh, uh, tackled that. We basically we, we wrote a giallo for Lifetime. Okay. Um, you know the black left killer. You know, sta- you know mm-hmm. stalking girls, uh, dispatching them, and, uh, and and I mean it's it's a straight it's a straight up like Argento esque giallo. Um, there are John Carpenter references to the entire thing we, that we make. Um, and the funny thing is, doing this for Lifetime, they never caught on to that. Uh. So. So we we, 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 we kind of pulled one over on them and and, uh, and you know we got lifetime to shoot a giallo which which just amuses me constantly <laughs> and and, uh, and kind of the cool thing of, about it is uh, I've, you know, I've checked online and regularly people people rate their favorite lifetime films and this one always comes in at the top that's great so so it's pretty it's pretty pleasing you know to basically say yeah we did we did like you know a, a Italian horror you know subgenre film for lifetime they never caught it and it, and it played great. One of my favorite parts about that, um, the experience of Grave Misconduct, was uh, working with the director, Armand Mastroianni. Mm-hmm. Twice. Who, uh, who people might know from uh, He Knows You're Alone, mm-hmm. the director of that, that uh, 1980 mm-hmm. slasher movie, which is one of the best yep. out yeah. there. Like Tom Hanks' first movie, and uh, genuinely a scary movie. I mean, yeah. that one is it's not a campy film by any means. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a pretty grisly, uh, intense 
suspense movie. So to to actually be sitting in in the on set and in the production offices with Armand was just uh, yeah. I mean that was a joy. I remember seeing He Knows You're Alone in theaters and just uh, being knocked out. And and here I am, and he's he's uh, riffing on the scenes that we've come up with and adding more things to them. He was he was great. And uh, like David said, it it was a, a lot of fun to bring a sort of a I mean it, it does function as a a murder mystery for most of it, but to bring a, a sort of a genre level to uh, to the Lifetime channel, uh, and knowing that there are grandmothers out there and uh, <laughs> who are watching this, who are uh, you know being scared, was was a lot of fun. Yeah, Armand definitely got what we were doing with it too. You know, we, we, he he was the kind of guy that we could mention something like Tenebrae and he immediately knew what we were talking about. So yeah, it uh, that one came out pretty pretty decent overall. Yeah, and and the funny part about it is you, you guys. Um, Made a shark swarm for Hallmark, and you did a Lifetime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's next? Yeah, <laughs> not not the places that uh, that I uh, not the place, maybe the Oprah Network will do a <laughs> will, will do a cannibal movie for Oprah. Yeah, we'll do a splatter movie for Oxygen next. <laughs> there you go. Now, you both guys were involved in the Storm TV series, am I correct? Yeah, at the outset, uh, the, the storm. The storm was a miniseries that actually aired on NBC. We wrote a draft of that early okay. on. Um, that was sizably rewritten by, by other writers. So, I mean, conceptually, some of our stuff is in there, and you know, maybe four or five lines of our dialogue. But okay. that's actually that, that one. That one is the least close to anything we ever wrote. You know, it was essentially we. You know, uh, one, once uh, NBC kind of got involved, they brought in other writers, as usually happens. You yeah. know, and. Uh, you know, we got a you know a nice paycheck for it and uh, did some decent work, but ultimately it's not really our movie. Well, the concept is still the one that we came up with because yeah. I had always loved those in sci-fi movies. I always loved uh, those movies about the scientist who invents the weather control machine. <laughs> uh, from you know, so we were given the title, or the original title was Megastorm. Mm-hmm. The producer said, "Here's we've, we own the title Megastorm. Can what would you come up with for Megastorm?" And there are a number of different ways to go. You could do natural disaster. You could do uh, you know, all different kinds of things, some meteorological kind of uh, outer space thing. But we decided to go for the weather control machine, which is always... Uh, there's a lot of good conspiracy theories yeah. about, out there about the HARP program. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we, we did a lot of research on HARP mm-hmm. and what people have their different theories about whether HARP is controlling the weather. and mm-hmm. So we, we brought a lot of HARP elements into the film. And, of course, uh, after it came out, all the HARP websites mm-hmm. started doing stories on the Storm movie saying, look, people know about our HARP program. It's, <laughs> it, it actually is it's real. So uh, it, it kind of yeah. fed back onto itself. There's, yeah. there's one aspect of it that, that is ours that, that still cracks me up. I'm a huge uh, Jess Franco fan. Uh, his exploitation movies, and especially like uh, Female Vampire and Vampiros mm-hmm. Lesbos, and She Killed in Ecstasy. Uh, Jess Franco is one of my cinematic heroes. Um, so there's a literal shout out in the film, in the storm, to Jess Franco. One of the, the characters is a pregnant woman who at the end is trapped in a flooding basement, right out of an Irwin Allen kind of movie. Um, and she's calling for her husband to come and save her, and her husband's name is Franco. So she starts screaming at the top of her lungs, Franco, Franco! <laughs> and th- we actually yeah. had a character shout, give a shout-out to Franco, to yeah. Jeff Franco, and nobody noticed that one. That's awesome. Well, the next one is the one that uh, you contacted me on, which 
I knew nothing about it. You know, I just happened to have it and uh, popped it in because, you know, I have a stack of movies that, you know, I do one at a time and whatever I get to, that's what I review. And Hard Ride to Hell in 2010. Now, this movie impressed me so much. Um, the way it was written, the way it was acted, the way the storyline went, and who really caught my attention, who I remember him from a TV show. Of course, he's done a lot of other things, but most recently for me would be Crossing Jordan, is um, Miguel yeah. Ferrer. Um, it was so neat to see him in this type of a role. I was just mesmerized by it. And I don't want that to sound stupid, but I was like, wow, let's see what this is. I mean, I mean, it's like, wow, let's see where this goes. Because, you know, you see him, I've been seeing him on Crossing Jordan as the the chief of, uh, you know, the head guy, Mr. Somewhat Goody Two-Shoes, whatever. But to see him in his role, he played it perfect. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, a, he's a hell of an actor. Matt, Matt and I are fans of his uh, going all the way back to RoboCop, yep. actually. Yep, I forgot to mention um, that, sorry. Yeah, so, so, you know, having him show up as our, as our you know, lead satanic biker was, was, uh, was, was pretty awesome, actually. Um, we actually, we, we, we never got to go to the set for this one. Filmed up in Canada of all of all places, uh, they, they did a fairly good job of making it seem like it was set in Texas. Right. But uh, but yeah, Miguel Miguel is fantastic. Um, I, I love the character and, and his performance. Um, I love the fact that his character is, is so vicious and brutal and evil that in a flashback, even Aleister Crowley is kind of afraid of him. Yeah. Yeah, you're <laughs> you know, right. So yeah, if Crowley thinks you're nuts, you probably got serious problems. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the part where. I don't want to give too much away because people didn't see it. I'm sure a lot has, but you know, like you mentioned, the scene in the church towards the end really, um, you you really have to get this movie. Like I talked to, you know, I talked to Matt earlier this, this week about it. There's a couple scenes in this movie that you really have to pay attention to understand. You know, it's like the the little Mexican boy in the beginning, where his <laughs> grandfather, I think it was, gets killed, and. I thought myself that he would survive the movie because of he's like, you know, he's come back, he's gonna fight this, fight these uh, evils, and and then here he, you know, he done, and that's what makes the movie even more interesting because you never know who's the survivor going to be. Same goes with um, uh, Brent. Oh wait, I'm drawing a blank here. Um, oh, Brendan, uh, the the lead guy. Yes, you know, yeah, it's like. You thought in the, early in the movie that he's going to be this. He seemed like he's this evil person, but he wasn't. He's just, you know a nice salesman or whatever. It's clever how you guys made this because you people who watch this, you're going to decoy them twice, and that's what I, that's what makes the movie so interesting. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yep, that was that was something that we really wanted to deal with. We were really wanted to. I mean, that's always the most fun in in a film when you're watching it and somebody you expect to to survive the entire film suddenly drops dead. I mean, uh, the the most obvious example of that is uh, Psycho when uh, Janet Lee kicks right. the bucket uh, in the first uh, 20 minutes. That's That was the big pulling the rug out from underneath people. The other one, uh, a more recent one that, that really elicited cheers was when Samuel L. Jackson bites the dust in uh, uh, Deep Blue Sea. Right. He's set up to clearly be a hero throughout the film and gets that great heroic monologue and then gets chomped in half right at the end of the monologue that that I mean, the audience just erupts at that point so in hard ride we definitely wanted by the end certain characters who you would expect to make it through the entire film uh suddenly tragically don't make it and uh 
you know, it really hits hits people harder, especially when you've come to really like some of those characters. And uh, we really wanted to make the the heroes, unlike a lot of a lot of horror movies where you know you have the group of, of heroes running around or the teens running around in. And for some reason, a lot of people a lot, in a lot of these movies, they're just bickering with each other the entire film. Yeah. Even before things go bad, and you wonder why would these people ever be friends with each other, and why would we care when they just spend all their time fighting? In Hard Ride, we really wanted to make them likable people. Um, they're not maybe the most deep characters in the world, but they're really likable. They like each other, uh, and because of that we're a little bit more invested in them than we would be if they were just uh, a bunch of assholes who spend the entire first 20 minutes arguing with each other. Right. So when bad things start happening to them, it means something because they don't, you don't want these things to happen to them. Plus, I mean, uh, to, 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 to give them, I guess, that likability and that sort of, almost like a painting quality, one of, one of the uh, main ideas in the film is that these kids are actually going down to do some Habitat for Humanity work. Yeah, you know, they 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 they, they couldn't be more well-meaning, you know, and uh, and it's really just this inadvertent stop they make at this rest stop, and they and they, they stumble into hell basically. Yep, you know, um, and one of the things that uh, that Matt and I figured early on, since you mentioned the character of Bob, the knife salesman, he's he's our favorite character in the film. Yes, um, the unsung the, hero. The was, yeah, yeah, the idea the idea was to give uh, to give like this sort of like badass John Carpenter type character, you know, to to, to put that guy into the mix, so. Just when it seems all is lost, you've got somebody who's every bit as tough and badass mm-hmm. as bad guys. Yep. You know, um, and, and the kind of level of the playing field. Well, so, he, he kind of reminded me of a Henry Wall, uh, Henry Rollins role. Yeah, absolutely. It's perfect. And uh, another thing I like about this movie too is the uh, the uh, I guess you call them the Saints, uh, devil worshippers, whatever. Is they didn't die right away, mm-hmm. and that's what made the movie even more creepier. It's like, man. How are they, they going to kill these? But then it, it leads up to the final ending, and that's what makes the movie so so impressive, you know. Yeah, that, 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 that's it's interesting. That was actually kind of done out of necessity. Um, initially, in, in our original script, uh, Matt and I wrote about there, there were about forty bikers or so that were that were actually involved in this thing, um, and we were killing them left and right, and. and and so we had made, you know, we had, we had made. So there were quite a lot of them. So you know, for for every few that died, there were there were tons more. Um, and ultimately, budget wise, they couldn't afford all these guys. You know, so so the idea, and this was actually, I'll I'll totally give this to, to the director Penelope Wheaton Wee. Her idea was let's let's have the same group of bikers, and they just keep getting back up. You know, right. it, it, it ties right in with this uh, you know satanic ritual stuff there that, that they're working on. So it made a lot of sense to have them essentially be unkillable. You know, un- until that final team rolls around. Right. So. Yeah. Speaking of Penelope, the director, um, I mean, we can't say enough great things about her. She, um, she, she's credited on the screenplay too because uh, she did a, a pass at it and uh, really adapted it to what they budgetarily could do. And all of her changes, all of her additions, were just were just terrific. They really. She's the one who added this element of cannibalism throughout the film. Gave it a real feel for a black comedy. Um, uh, really uh, streamlined some of the characters where we had a few extra characters in there who it turns out weren't necessarily uh, needed for the, for the film. And she really um, shepherded the entire project uh, from from writing, from doing a, another pass of the script to her phenomenal direction. She's she's really the hero of that movie. I think she what she captured in I think it was 13 days yeah. that it took to film. 
uh, I mean, she put every dime on on screen. She really uh, maximized the budget, maximized shooting time, and uh, you know, brought her vast experience of of doing this kind of guerrilla filmmaking to to the project, and uh, you know, just knocked it out of the park as far as I'm concerned. Have you got any numbers on it so far? I mean, I, I, how's it doing as far as the uh, the, uh, the, the sales and stuff? Do you hear anything? Seems to have done very well. I, I spoke to Penelope a couple months ago, and, thing, and things were uh, things were doing really well for it. Um, I know that uh, it hit uh, like the red box actually, um, and did very well there. Actually, pro- speaking of, of surreal moments, I was I was going to my my local Seven Eleven, and probably my my proudest moment was you know I'm passing by the red box out front of Seven Eleven. There's Hard Ride to Hell sitting right there. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it was just nice to know that. That people like all over were able to to check it out, and yep. it's had a few airings on Spike TV, uh, which which has done have done pretty well, and it's also been re-released in a, a second DVD where it's paired as a double feature with another film from the same production company called Backwoods, yeah, Ooh. which is sort of a, a Hills Have Eyes ish uh, uh, wrong turn style horror film, and it's uh, pack- packaged do. as a uh, as a double feature, which is. Uh, which is kind of the way we intended it to be seen. Uh, it was you, there's a lot of kind of a, a drive-in quality to it. Uh, David and I grew up watching uh, uh, so many films at the drive-in, uh, and and that really kind of marks film. Certain movies will always exist for me as drive-in movies. The Hills Have Eyes. I don't know how many times I saw that at the drive-in. Maybe 12 different times. It was always the second build or third build, or sometimes it would be. Uh, you know, the, the fourth build for, for quadruple features. So we wanted to Hard Ride to be the kind of movie that we might have watched at the drive-in at one point. And, um, you know, so many of the, the drive-in movies were biker movies. The Wild Angels was one that I really loved as a kid, uh, where people oh, yeah. were having their eyes stabbed out with, uh, with violin bows. Uh, that was just, uh, you know, part of that whole experience with the biker movie. And Hard Ride was, was written thinking of those movies and thinking of our fondness for that kind of drive-in quality. Yeah, uh, also, obviously, we should mention Race with the Devil. Um, that's a film that, that definitely inspired Hard Ride. I, I wanted to do sort of a modern take on that kind of film. You know, right. Race with the Devil was a, a somewhat similar concept, although uh, although it's played uh, it's played uh, a little more subtly. Uh, we, we wanted to go balls to the wall and, you know, just have, you know, you know, crazy satanic bikers and cannibalism and uh, as much uh, gore and grew as we could get into this kind of thing. Right. Yeah, um, real quick, um, before I ask you guys any, any new projects, but one scene in the movie, right in the beginning, where it gives you that Western feel. Mm-hmm. And th- that was so neat to, to see that, because, you know, somebody who watches that movie in the beginning, they are totally by surprise at what happens, because how it starts out, it seems like one of those bonanza... Uh, spaghetti western type things where you know they're going through the whatever and then the wind kicks up and they do this little thing here and the wind stops it's just a, it's an all around neat movie yeah it has um, we I mean who doesn't love those spaghetti westerns and that mm-hmm. kind of uh, and especially because a lot of those movies like one of the other ones we were thinking about are the um, they're a little bit more obscure but but real horror fans I think are uh, know what, what I'm talking about the Coffin Joe movies yep um which has has a real Spanish flavor to them. There's yep. uh, um, there's something about supernatural Spanish films uh, or Latin supernatural films that have their own kind of vibe to them. And Hard Ride definitely is written with that feel. With the there's a heavy Catholicism mixed in there. There's 
the old Spanish mission that, mm-hmm. that they go to. There's uh, the Mexican grandfather and the young boy. And, and the medallion uh, there is. Uh, yeah, the medallion. And Miguel uh, Ferrar is, is a uh, uh, Castilian priest. Yep. And it has that kind of quality to it, which I, which I always love, that Tex-Mex kind of mm-hmm. horror vibe to it. And uh, you know, that, was, that was one of the, the pleasures that, that that made it into the film, that that yeah. feeling really was captured. Yeah, part of part of that too also comes to the fact that uh, I grew up in Texas, uh, you know, not far from the border as well. And that's one of the first things that Matt and I talked about was, uh, you know, um, I I love those films especially too because they they remind me of you know my childhood growing up and you know I, I wanted to instill that sort of that sort of Tex-Mex border flavor too. Um, you know, early on with uh, even even early on with the scene, you know, it's it's a border town. You know that uh, that could exist in virtually any time, and there are places in Texas that uh, that are still that way. Actually, yeah. um, that it, it's like stepping back in the past. And you know, I mean, there there are places on the board I've been to recently where you still don't even get cell phone coverage, which we actually address in the film. Um, we actually got some criticism for that. People in a, in a few reviews were calling out the fact, oh, you know, cell phones work everywhere, and that's really not true. <laughs> um, Having having been back down there just recently, it's like a dead zone there. You know, it it is uh, it is another world, and that's uh, that otherworldly feel was something that uh, we that we kind of borrowed from you know from my life as well as the films we love to, to open up hard drive. Right now, is there anything else you guys have going down the road? Several things actually. Um, well, Matt and I uh, have uh, actually been working on a couple of little action films, and then uh, we wrote an old school slasher that. That we're trying to get going right now. Uh, set at, all set at a girls' school. That uh, that's uh, you know kind of like our love of movies like Fun House and Hell Night and things like that. Excellent. That's uh, my style. And also, separately, I wrote. Uh, I actually just wrote a film for a director named Mike Mendez. Um, he's the guy that did uh, The Convent and uh, the first of those After Dark movies, called, a movie called The Grave Dancers. And uh, that film is called Overkill, and uh, we're looking at shooting that this year. And it's sort of a, a crazy, like you know, battle royale, running man uh, mix with uh, with uh, iconic movie serial killers tossed in there. Excellent. All right. Is there anything else? Um, no, we're just really glad that people are watching the films and that they're enjoying them and uh, looking to get the next ones off the ground. It's. Uh, it can be hard to get, just get one one film greenlit, and in a relatively short period of time, we've we've been lucky enough to have uh, you know quite a few uh, that were made relatively well and and, yep. and fast, and we're hoping to keep keep that momentum going, and uh, and, and hope to to have more in, in the red boxes across the country so that people can watch them. Absolutely. Well, good luck. Cause I can tell you right now, Hard Ride to Hell is a damn good movie. I'll say it and I'll Thank say it you. again. Well, you guys, thanks a lot for coming on today, for spending some time with me talking about a few projects. But uh, uh, like I said, I wish you luck. Um, keep up the great writing. All right? Thanks so much. Absolutely. And, uh, thank you, and thank you for listening to some of my reviews. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Hey, this is Sean Kane, director of Silent Night and Zombie Night, and you're listening to Gruesome Herzog. Hello, this is Natalie Sheets. I play Jenna in the film Madison County, and you're listening to Gruesome Herzog. Hey, horror fans, this is Ace Marrero, and you are listening to Gruesome Herzog. Dig it! I'm Jessica Funneborn, and I'm listening to Gruesome Herzog. This is Yvette Corbea, and most of you know me as Marla from Run, Bitch, Run. She's a really evil, crazy bitch. 
and you guys are listening to Gruesome Herzog. Hi, this is David Z. Stamp, and you're listening to Gruesome Herzogs. Hey, this is Bill Oberst, Jr. I play Dale in the film Dismal, and as Dale would say, let me tell you something. You're listening to Gruesome Herzog. You got Dale's word on that. Hey, this is James Cotton. I'm a director, writer, producer. You're listening to Gruesome Herzog. Jack Harrison, action actor and stunt coordinator of all three stunt teams. I played the character Idiot in the movie Dismal, and you're listening to Gruesome Herzog. Gruesome Herzog. 